As we turn to Romans chapter 6 this morning, I want to I start in a different direction. I want to I I back up a little bit. I want to rewind the storyline just a bit. When you think about the nation of Israel, the singular big event in the nation of Israel is the Exodus. Passover and the exodus out of Egypt. This is the moment. Sure, there was the, the, the call of Abraham and the, and the Abrahamic covenant. Sure, there was the time when Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But it was a, a family of Abraham's descendants that entered Egypt 400 years earlier. And it is now a nation. God's this nation that God has called out and whom God redeems by the blood of the Passover lamb, that all of those who, who shelter themselves under the blood of this Passover lamb, as God has prescribed, they are going to be protected, covered, and the death that is, that is coming across Egypt will pass over them. And that, of course, typifies our salvation by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ, our Passover, Paul says, is sacrificed for us. And not only are they saved from death by the blood of the Passover lamb and the lamb's death in their place, but they are that very night, they are called out of Egypt out of bondage, out of slavery, into a new life that God has set before them. That they are, are called to come out of, set free from Egypt, that they might worship God. That's the purpose of the Exodus. Not merely freedom from, from bondage, but called out to live new, a life in worship to God. That was God's purpose. That was God's intention. And so then, imagine you are in that Exodus moment, and the day has come, and staff in hand, and you, you eat the unleavened bread, standing at the table, sandals already on your feet, ready to go, and the moment comes, and out you go. And yet Moses, following this pillar of fire, the glory of God himself, leading them out of Egypt, and yet Following Moses, following God, they wind up at the edge of the Red Sea. They are trapped. They are closed in. They are hemmed in. And they look around, or they look in the rearview mirror, and they find the army of the Egyptians rushing up behind them because Pharaoh has changed his mind. He doesn't want to let them go anyway. And they are trapped against the Red Sea in front of them and the armies of Pharaoh behind them. And what are they going to do? And the Lord tells to Moses, stand still and see, behold, watch it happen, the salvation of the Lord. And the glory of God that was in front of them leading them moves and, and guards behind them, separating themselves from the army all through the night. And Moses takes that staff, that rod of God's judgment of the plagues of Egypt, and he holds it over the Red Sea, which blocked them into certain death, and the waters pull apart. And the waters, it says, wall up on either side. And Israel is able to pass through, not on mud, silty, wet, slippery, slop, but on dry ground. And so, 
There they are, and there they begin to go. And you're back a little bit in this, in this mass of Israelites, and what are you going to do? You're, you're coming up with it. The, the whole mass is moving together, and you're coming up, and you're seeing it. people are walking right across there. It's working, but you see the water. You see these walls of death that could fall in on you at any time. What are you going to do? Are you going to go for it? Are you going to believe God? See the salvation of God. And they go through, and they go across on dry land to the other side. And so the Egyptian army is watching this, and then the, the, the cloud of God's glory moves out of the way and allows the Egyptians to chase after them again. And the Egyptians pull up to the, to the edge of the Red Sea, and they look at that gap, and the water's walled up, and they say, well, if it worked for the Israelites, it'll work for us too. And they plunge in, and they dive, they, they start across, and they're going across that land, and all of a sudden, when the army is out in the middle of the passageway, the waters fall in on either side, and the army of Pharaoh is wiped out, because they didn't go through in faith of the salvation of the Lord. They went through in their own will, and their own ends, in order to pursue God's people, and the Lord causes that water to fall down in upon them. Now imagine, imagine a, a slave master who has followed behind the army because when the army recaptures these Israelite rebels who think they could escape the power of Egypt, when the army recaptures them, those that they don't kill, your job as the slave master is going to be to return them to the bondage and slavery of mixing mud and making bricks. And you arrive, and you arrive, and you stand there at the edge of the Red Sea, and you're trying to put together what has happened here. And you look, and the waters are still churning. And you look, and you see the, the floatsome of broken chariot wheels and spears and weapons of warfare. And, and you see some of the bodies of the brave Egyptian shoulders, and now start, soldiers are starting to, to wash up on the, on the shoreline. And you look across. And you see the Israelites on the other side. And they are dancing for joy. Free, free. We're free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free at last. And you are enraged. And you don't know what else to say because this is all you've ever shouted at them. And you say, you shout across those, those still churning waters, mix mud, make bricks. And to your surprise... There across the water, on the other side, some of those Israelites do just as you command. Why would they? There is no way for you and your whip to reach across. But some of those Israelites on the other side of the water, they have heard that voice of bondage all their life. They have heard the crack of the whip. And so, almost by default, they answer that command. And quickly they begin to scurry, gathering, gathering straw, mixing mud, making bricks. But they don't have to do that anymore. God has delivered them through death into a new life, a life of no longer serving the old slave master, no longer in bondage. Now they are free, not to be free to do whatever it is they want to be free. Now they are free to worship God. 
with their life. In a new life he has given them, a new standing he has given them, a new freedom he has given them. In, in, a, in a land that flows with milk and honey, a land that is, that is full of orchards and vineyards that they did not plant, that has houses for them to live in which they did not build, God has provided for them. Why in the world would they return to the master of the past? And obedience to bondage they are no longer bound to. And the question remains for Christians today. Why would we continue to live in serving, continue to live in giving ourselves to a former master from whom we have been set free? That is what's set before us in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, I've entitled it, Leave the Mud and Tend the Vine. That God has called us out of bondage, out of the making of bricks as slaves. God has called us into a new life of living with and worshiping and serving him in his vineyard for his glory. And so the question is set before us, what shall I do? What will I now give myself to? Romans chapter 6, we have two questions put before us. And one thing is certain, the best way to get the wrong answer is to ask the wrong question. And that's what happens in Romans chapter 6. Twice the wrong question is answered and the, and the error of the question is revealed. But these are important to consider because these questions expose subtle lies. Lies that are whispered within our own souls. Lies that will echo around in our own head and try to rationalize our way into doing something that will not benefit us. It will not bear fruit. It will not lead toward life. And yet, we want to, by default, go there anyway. And the reasons sometimes well up from within us. And so, they're confronted here. Two questions. The first question is this. Can I continue sinning since God's grace will always forgive? That's the way that chapter 5 ended. God's grace is so big. God's grace is so limitless that even where sin abounds, God's grace, it says, superabounds. Even when sin increases, God's grace all the more increases. His grace will always be greater than your sin. That is the assurance of our salvation. And that's the way Romans 5 ends. That just as we were, we were helpless in Adam, that we have been rescued in Christ. And I can't undo because I cannot outdo God. His grace will always be greater than my sin. Where sin increases, grace will all the more increase. Well, does that mean then? What should we say then? Chapter 6 and verse 1. Are we to continue in sin so that grace would abound? If, if more sin means more grace, then one of the ways we could glorify God all the more is we won't worry about our sin. We'll go ahead and just keep it up. We'll continue in it. And then God will just pour out his grace and look at all the grace God will be exercising. We could glorify God by continuing to sin so that his grace continues to forgive. It's actually a life and death question. How does Paul answer that question? Would you just say, no, that doesn't work? I mean, if you continue to sin, well, maybe God's grace will not continue to forgive. 
If this isn't in some way a valid question, if this isn't something that a Christian could be led into believing and misusing, then it's because we don't understand how deep and full and rich and unending God's grace actually is. That God will not be mocked. What we sow, we're going to reap, but that doesn't mean that we're going to reach the end of God's grace. So yes, God forgives. So sometimes we think, well, I can do what I want because God's going to have to forgive me. How does Paul answer the question without diminishing? In fact, Paul answers the question in a way that gives us even a deeper, fuller glimpse of what God has done for us in his grace. Because we tend to limit grace to God's forgiveness of our sin. There's a whole nother side of it on the far side of that Red Sea. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. No way. God forbid. Don't even think such a thought. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Wait, what do you mean died to sin? I'm not dead yet. Some, some mornings I feel like it, but I'm, not, I'm still alive. How, what do you mean? How can we who died to sin still live in it? When did I die to sin? Well, we just saw the grand object lesson of that this morning. We saw that lived out before us. What we saw lived out as a declaration of life in Christ, what we saw was an expression of this is what life in Christ is. It is dying with Christ in his death for our sin. It is also raised with Christ to walk in new life. That's what Paul says here. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The, the, the Christian church has had through the centuries, from the very beginning, two ordinances. One of those is the Lord's table, where we remember that last supper, that Passover supper, where Jesus tells his disciples that he himself is the fulfillment of Passover. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is God's Passover sacrificed for us. And then we have baptism. Baptism whereby when someone has believed in Jesus, they are, by the Spirit of the living God, we are placed into the body of Christ. We are identified with Christ. We are counted with Christ in his death and in his resurrection, whether you ever get baptized or not. Well, all, all believers' baptism, the baptism of those who have believed in Jesus, and this is why we do that by immersion underwater, is we are declaring what is true of us in Jesus. We are declaring that, yes, I have been united with Jesus in his death. And so when Jeff just did that for Dave earlier in the service, they went all the way underwater. And Dave was under, and Dave was buried, and made Dave rest. No, Dave won't rest in peace. No, Dave has got to come back up. Why? Well, you can't live underwater. And Dave has been given new life in Jesus in order to live. That's what it's about, isn't it? And so I always tell people, yeah, I'll, I'll put you under, but I won't leave you there. I will bring you back up. Trust me, we have to. It'll be a heresy if we don't. You've always got to bring them back up because we have been saved and we die in his death in order to live in his life. 
We have been buried with Christ in his death in order that we can be raised with him to live a new life. The Christian life is not only about forgiveness of sins, but God's grace is for us to live new. Why wouldn't you? There you are on the far side of the Red Sea. Why would you still make bricks? Well, now you can step into the garden that God has given you. Now you can begin to live a life of worship freed from the bondage that you were formerly stuck in. God's grace is glorified not just by saving us from death, but by giving us his life. I want to ask you, it's a good time to ask. We've just been reminded of it. We've seen it again. I, I, I trust you've been reminded of your own baptism as, you, as we participated together with Dave this morning. Or were you? Maybe this is something that, yeah, I've believed in Jesus, but I've never been baptized as a believer in Jesus to declare I've been joined with him in his death and I've been joined with him in his resurrection. I've never done that. I've not taken that step. I've not declared, and, and I was saved so long ago that now it kind of seems like it'd be sort of awkward or embarrassing to go back and do that, that first thing now. Do I really need to? This is, this is an opportunity to plant a flag. This is an opportunity to draw a line in the sand. This is an opportunity to join in what Christians have done since the very beginning of the church in every century around the world at times when it costs them dearly. I, I, I've spoken, when we were with Transworld Radio, Radio I spoke with some, some, some Christians from China who described baptisms in China at that time when they had come to faith and they would meet in the night out in the woods somewhere and there was a pond and one by one they were baptized and it was freezing cold but nobody cared and there was great joy. But as each one was baptized, they would run off and go home because they never knew when the police would come. They never knew when the authorities would come and whoever was still there would be arrested. So there's no sense extra ones being arrested who've already been baptized. And yet, at great risk... They would do this because it's a marker in one's own soul. I, as you heard Dave say, I want to live in Christ's life. And so it's not only for me, but we remind ourselves, one another, that this is our faith, not only that Jesus died for my sin, but that he was raised in order to give me his life. So Paul answers this question with with things that we know. Do you not know that you have been identified with Christ? So since you've been identified with Christ, you are crucified with him in verses 5 to 7. Since you have been identified with Christ in his death for us, you are also identified with Christ in order to live his new life. Look at verse 8. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again that death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. And so then what do we do with that? We know these things. The next thing Paul says is believe it. Count it to be true. Lean in on it. Rest yourself. Believe this. Know these things. And if you know these things, believe it. Count it to be true. Verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves counted to be true that you are dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. And so we step into that. What we believe determines what we do. 
And what we do then, verse 12 to 14, therefore, do not continue to let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not continue to mix mud and make bricks. Instead, do not present your members as sin, as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you because you are not under law but under grace. So what do we do? We present, we yield, we give ourselves to God. Present to yourselves. That question misunderstands grace as enabling sin when grace actually enables life. We're no longer bound to make bricks for Pharaoh. You are free to live in worship to God. I thought of an illustration of this. When I was young and I was still in high school up in Arlington, Washington, I could walk if I didn't have a ride, if I hadn't organized a ride after sports practice or something. I could walk home. I could get home. It would take me two hours. Actually, two hours and five minutes if I trust Google Maps walking. But I think I can walk faster than Google Maps, so I'm going to go with two hours. I could get home in two hours, but then something wonderful happened, something miraculous happened, something that transformed my life. I turned 16. I invested all the money I had saved up in doing miserable jobs that I could buy a car. It wasn't much of a car. I, 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 I was told it didn't really have steering. The front end was so loose you sort of outguessed it down the road. I was told by somebody else who drove it once, why does your car have any brakes? I just thought that was normal. I thought that's how, that's how all cars were. I thought it was normal to you know, drag your foot to stop. I'd done that on my bike. It wasn't much of a car, but it was a car. And now, instead of two hours to get from the high school home or home to the high school, I could drive it in 12 minutes. Everything changed. My life was radically transformed. That's a poor example of the kind of change that God has made when he has given us new life in Christ that now we can live, now we can serve him. What before was destined to end in in some selfish collapse around my own desires and my own motives, now we've been set free from the bondage to sin that now we can live. Now we can give ourselves to God. Now we can present these same instruments of our body as instruments in God's orchestra of his righteousness in harmony with the Holy Spirit, making a beautiful sound in life of worship to the true and living God. That's what has been set before us. And we will live that out in particular choices that I will make. What will I do? Will I serve myself? Will I indulge myself? Will I, will I pursue my own desires, my own ambitions, the things that I think will make me feel better for me? Or will I give myself to God? Will I give myself to him in serving others? This gets teased out in the next question. What then? We're not under law but under grace. Since we're not under law, can I just do what I want? Can't I get away with it since I'm not under law but under grace? That's question number two. Again, the way to get the wrong answer, 
is to ask the wrong question. Because, yeah, it would seem like it. Unless I limit grace, unless I put an end limit on how much grace God will give, then yes, I could continue in sin because I'm not under law. The law is no longer there to condemn me, so I'm good with God. I can do as I please. But how do you please? I can do what I want, but what do I want? If God's life is in me, I want things I never wanted before. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he will give you your heart's desires. I take that to mean not only will he give me the things that I want, but he will jiggle my willer a little bit. He will change the things I want and bring those in line with this new life that he has given me. I'll want things that I didn't want before. And I don't want in the same way the things that I used to want so very badly. You never get away with sin. That's what the question overlooks. Can't I get away with it since I'm not under law but under grace? You never get away with sin. You will reap what you sow. But why would I want sin to get its way with me? That's the better question, isn't it? Why would I want sin to get its way with me? For instance, let's take this example into marriage. Okay, I'm going to get married. I want it to work. I want it to last. So tell me, how much can I get away with? That'd be a great honeymoon conversation, wouldn't it? Okay, dear wife, sweet thing, how much can I get away with before you would leave me? Wouldn't that be great honeymoon conversation? I mean, if I flirt just a little, would that sort of ruin things? Or how far do I really have to go before it would ruin the marriage? That is, that is, that is not at all a good way to consider, well, how much time do I need to spend with my spouse? I mean, okay, I know we got, now, we, now we need to do things together, but, but how much? I mean, is it like 15 minutes a day? Is it an hour a day? Help me out here. How, how much time? Isn't that the wrong question? That's not a question that's, going to, that's really going to help in this relationship. A better question might be this. Find someone that you want to share the rest of your life with. And then do so. Right? Share life together. How can we share life together? How can we do this and be in this together? And it may take life to figure that out fully. But that's going in the right direction instead of how much can I get away with in this new relationship. You see, we have a built-in weakness. The, the ESV calls it our natural limitations. Many of your Bible translations call it the weakness of your flesh. Paul's going to say, let me give you an analogy. Because of the weakness of your flesh. Let me talk to you in human terms, in a human analogy, because of the weakness of your flesh. Can I just get away with it? Well, verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or obedience which leads to righteousness? So Paul says, I'm going to use this illustration of slavery as an example. Now, it's not a good example, especially when it comes to our life with God, but because of our human experience and because of our background in slavery and bondage, like the Israelites, it's an illustration that works for us. It can help us understand at least that side of it. So he goes on. Let's use this illustration. Whoever you serve... Whether it's willful or not, that's the one whose servant you are. 
The one you serve is the one whose servant you are. It's as simple as that. Okay, verse 17. But thanks be to God, though you were once slaves and servants of sin, you have become obedient from the heart you believed. You became obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching this new truth, this new covenant, this gospel of your salvation to which you have been committed, entrusted. And having been set free from sin through Jesus' death for us, we have become slaves or servants of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, because of the weakness of your your flesh. Your human susceptibility to default towards sin. We have these propensities and we have these habits. We have a, a weakness within our natural humanity that bends itself toward self. I want to serve me in ways that are subtle and I don't even recognize it, but I want to serve me. And I need to intentionally choose or I'm going to default to serving me, to serving sin. I'm speaking in Herman terms because of the likeness of your natural limitation. Just as you once presented or gave your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. It's kind of like that sometime theologian, Bob Dylan, in his... Jesus' years said it this way. You got to serve somebody. Now, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. You know, I was, I was watching his performance of this song at the Grammys years ago. It was on YouTube, and they asked him, For this Grammy episode, you know, Hollywood wasn't sure what to do with Bob Dylan in his Jesus years. And and, uh, they said, okay, you're going to do this song. Well, could could you cut it to three minutes? Well, the curtain comes up. The band starts. And they went past six minutes. One circumstance in life. You may be this. You may be that. You might be this. You might be that. But you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil. And at one point he says, it may be the devil, and it can be the Lord. But you got to serve somebody. And that's true for you and I. And what Paul is telling us, because of our, our natural limitations, because of the weakness of our human mortal flesh, which will tend itself towards sin if left to itself, we need to choose to give ourselves to God. We need to make intentional choices. Here I will serve the Lord. Or you're going to end up serving somebody else. For when you were slaves of sin, you, well, what should I choose? Should I, should, I, should I serve the Lord or should I do what I want? Should I do whatever I can get away with? Well, what's the outcome? Why would you do this or that? Paul says to continue in life with the end in view. Look to the end. Where are we going? And what will what you choose now, how will that impact the destination to which we are intended? For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You weren't going to live righteously. You weren't going to be righteousness. But what did it get you? What fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. 
But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. Verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has saved you and restored you into right relationship with himself. And now you have the opportunity, you have the freedom, you have now by God's grace the ability and the calling to walk with him in new life, to walk in the light as God is in the light, and to have fellowship with him, one with another. We have that fellowship restored by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Or we can choose of ourselves to go our own way and to serve ourselves and to instead grieve that spirit and to instead quench that spirit's enlivening and enabling even in our lives, to quench that fellowship that has been restored to us with God. We can create distance when there is no need because God has restored us into right relationship with him. The choices that we make are going to be choices that are going to bear fruit, fruit that will last, or that are going to not bear fruit. As I was thought about that, I thought about reaping what we sow, I thought of a couple of family tree examples. I thought of one family tree example where a parent chose infidelity. It led to divorce. It led to two households. It led to poverty. It led to neither parent really having time with teenage children. And it, it caused those children uncertain who they were or where they belonged in life, but certainly scattering from the home as quickly as they could. In contrast, I thought of a father who chose to work less. To be paid less as a result, to have less income, but to be with his family more and to serve the Lord with them in the midst of their week. They lived a little simpler. They did it without some extras. But they've opened their home and their own hearts to others. And God is bearing fruit through that family, fruit that will last to eternity. That first story is actually a story from my family tree. That's my family background. The second story I told is a story that's one of our families here that I'm thinking of. It, it probably is repeated across multiple families within our church family. But God's grace is such that even if your family tree was broken, no matter what the choices were before, no matter the impact of decisions in the past, Redemption in Christ is such that no matter what was then, now I can live. The focus is not on what is before that is forgiven. The focus now is on, Lord, what would you have me to do? Now I want to live. Now I want to walk with him. And it's not the choice from the past. It's what will I do next? You know, we in the midst of the Christian life, we often focus on pulling weeds. We often focus on the things that we're trying to root out of our lives. We often focus on what I want to stop doing this and I, want, I don't want to do that anymore and I don't want to do this. And I'm going to keep these things out of my life. And we're, and we're busy playing whack-a-mole. When what we should be doing, what we need to be doing, what we must be doing is choosing to live. 
Yes, you're going to have to make some intentional choices. No, I'm not going to go there. In fact, when the temptation comes, I'm going to flee. I'm going to run in the opposite direction. I'm going to turn it off, and I'm going to, do, I'm, I'm going to physically move from that location. That's a great way. If, if, if the Internet is a source of your temptation, turn it off and get up and physically move. Change your location. But choose instead to do something good. Lord, what would you have me to do instead? Instead of merely choosing not to do that, what will I choose to do? Instead of wasting my time medicating myself on this, maybe I'll get up, I'll move, and I'll call somebody. Not because I need them to strengthen me, but I want to call somebody and encourage them. And doing that, stepping into God's will for me in Christ, will strengthen me. We often focus on what we're trying not to do when we ought to maybe turn our attention to, Lord, what would you have me to do? How could I, instead of stop sinning, how could I now live? Go there. What choices will you face this week? There'll be all kinds of different ones. Choose to live Christ's life in that choice. It may be to click on an image to feed a craving or call someone instead, encourage somebody else instead. It may be to buy this for me or it might be to buy that for someone, to give some help to support a ministry. What you do at home today will either strengthen your family or it will weaken it. Will you put the kids off or will you engage them? Will you reveal your heart? Will you play Teach them something. I'll give you an example. Have you ever binged Netflix? We finally cut the cord. But I, I can attest to many times when I would just sit and, and uh, maybe I was just by myself and so I would watch this and I'd watch the next and I'd watch the next and I'd watch the... And you can, you can, you can stop at the end of the day and say, what? Wait, it's what time? Where did my day go? How many hours was I here glued from one episode that swung right on into the next? And how do I ever get that day back? And the answer is, you don't. You don't. Yesterday is gone. But what will I do with today? Today, I can live. I may have squandered something before. I may have missed opportunities, and those opportunities are God. But Lord, what would you have me to do? How will I live today? How will I live this afternoon? I want to I close with a phrase that you've heard before. Because what we need to do, what I'm advocating is that we need to choose life. Now, when you hear me say choose life, you think of not allowing a baby to be killed even within the mother's womb. You think about the, the, uh, the uh, horror of abortion and that we need to choose life. We need to let that baby live. But wouldn't it be a terrible thing if we prevented an abortion and a baby lives, a baby is born, and the baby is left there? And the baby is not rightly fed and clothed and nourished, the baby is not rightly educated, but, is, but the child grows up ignorant. The child is left to forage for itself. The child is, is, is misused and abused in possibly horrible ways. But at least the child was able to have life, right? 
Well, that's not the life that you would want for any child. You would want that child to not only be born, but to be welcomed into a family and to be loved and to be fed and nurtured and cared for and to grow and to be educated and to, and to know what it is to, to play and to know what it is to learn to work and to grow up and to mature and to know the God who made them and walk with him and serve him. That's the life we would choose. You know, in the first century, when this book of Romans was written, in Roman society, it was, it, was, it was somewhat uncommon to actually have what we know as abortion, but it was way too common for a child to be born and it was not the child that was desired. A son was desired instead of a daughter, let's say. And so the child would be abandoned. The child would be what was called exposed. The father would not lift it and claim it. The baby was just left. And it was exposed, left to die, often with the day's rubbish. The church in the first century, what they were known for in Roman society is they would rescue those babies. They were not their own, but they would take them as their own. Slave traders would actually go looking for those babies, and they would raise them for a life of slavery. The Christian would raise, would, would take them, find them, bring them home, bring them into their own families, raise them as their own children, love them, care for them, sacrifice for them, give themselves for them, to give them all the life God would intend for them to have. And that's what God does with his children. His desire for you is not just to be made alive in Christ because your sins are forgiven. His desire for you and I is that we would live. Not mixing mud, making bricks. It might be fun when you're five, but God has called us to a far greater glory of building his temple in knowing and following him by helping others to know and follow him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for the glory of knowing you in life. Thank you, Lord, that our salvation is not only a salvation that forgives all of our guilt and everything in the past. Lord, your grace is great enough to forgive that which we have not yet done. And yet, Father, your grace is greater than that. Your grace is sufficient to give us life. And that's where we want to live. Lord, we want to live in this new life that you've given us, a life of worship to you, a life to which you call us, a life which stretches beyond what we could think or even imagine. Lord, help us today to choose your life and to live for you into the lives of others. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.